And the text for the sermon this morning comes from Psalm 18. As is our practice, we uh, typically begin each uh, month considering a psalm, a portion of a psalm, and and we've been for the last two months considering Psalm 18. Now we uh, consider the last portion of this psalm. And before I read our text, I just want to give uh, some some background here, remind you of where we've been uh, with Psalm 18. As we've worked through Psalm 18, we have seen that this psalm is indeed prophetic of Christ. You'll recall that the first 19 verses speak of how God delivered David from his enemies. David speaks of of being under the the pains of death, of of being in in the shadow of Sheol. And yet God delivered him from all his trouble, and, and he delivers us from all our troubles. David describes the character and salvation of his God with with imagery of warfare as well. We read in verse 2 of Psalm 18, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Then David goes on to describe how God achieved that salvation, how God indeed was his stronghold, his rock, and his defense. Uh, David describes God coming down, rending the heavens, and coming down to earth. We read that in in verse 9 of Psalm 18. He bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. God condescended. The transcendent God became imminent. He condescended save his people. He left his heavenly throne in order to deliver David from the pains of death. Then we saw a shift last month in verses 20 through 27. And these verses, 20 through 27, are arguably the the focal point of of Psalm 18. You might think of it as, as the bullseye of a target, and, and the surrounding psalm falls, forms those, those outer rings. But, but uh, these verses, 20 through 27, are, are the heart of, of the psalm. And these verses speak of an innocent and perfect man. And, and they demand that we shift our, our gaze from David and the salvation God provided David to David's helper, to, to David's deliverer. They, they cause us to shift our eyes from David to Jesus Christ. Although David speaks in, in first-person pronouns, he uses the word I, me, and my in those verses. Uh, you'll see there in verse uh, 20, the Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. Uh, we read also in verse 23, I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Even though he uses these first-person pronouns, David is prophetically speaking of someone else. He's speaking of Jesus Christ. Because as we read and, and study the Psalms, we, we need to be mindful of David's position in the history of redemption. David was a king as well as a prophet in Israel. He was also a type of Jesus Christ. Now, children, I I want to ask you 
do you know what a type is? And I want to encourage you to, to pay attention because this question may just come up during our sermon discussion time after lunch. What is a type? It can be sometimes uh, difficult for us to, what, what, what does it mean for David to be a type of Christ? But I want you to consider it in two different ways. When you play with Play-Doh, you have this, this ball of, of Play-Doh, and, and you have a toy, and you, you take that toy and you push it into that ball of Play-Doh, you, you leave an impression and it might look a little like that toy. It's not, not, it has some of the features of, of the toy, but it's not the toy. It, it, but it has uh, uh, some of the characteristics of that toy. And even though it's not perfect, it, it imitates some of those features. And this is one way you can think of a type. David, as a type of Jesus Christ, imitates him in being a king and a prophet. Just as Christ is, is a king and a prophet, David also is a king and a prophet. And yet there's something missing if we simply think of a type as, as an impression, like uh, sticking a toy in a, in a ball of Play-Doh. Because fundamental to someone being a type in Scripture is the need for that type to, to be prophetic. A type is, is looking ahead to its fulfillment and encourages us, as, as we read of, of types in Scripture, to, to not just focus solely on that type, but it encourages us to, to look ahead, to, to look to someone who fulfills this type, to look ahead to, the, to maybe the actual toy. And so another way I want to, to encourage you to, to think of a type is, is like a medieval herald. Perhaps you've seen movies or books that have a herald in it. It was a herald's job to tell a town that the king was approaching. The herald would have, have the, the clothing of royalty. He would often ride on a royal horse. He would have the authority and the proclamation of his king. And yet, he would not be the king himself. Instead, he would be preparing the way for the king. He would be pointing others, don't look at me. Yes, I have this royal authority, but look to the actual king. And similarly, David, while a type of Christ, being a king and a prophet, was not Christ himself. He certainly was uh, a great king in Israel. He, he brought, he, he won many victories for the people of Israel, defeating the Philistines and the surrounding nations. But David was also a sinner. Again and again broke God's law, and yet he continued uh, to follow God. And, and in so doing, David, as a type, as a king, points us that we need an ultimate king. We need uh, Jesus Christ. Well, what does all that have to do with the sermon this morning? Well, in this last section of Psalm 18, we read of David's great victories he accomplished by the power of God. Yet we need to understand that ultimately these verses uh, speak of the victories of Jesus Christ. And as they speak of Jesus' victories, these verses are immensely relevant for us. Because Jesus is our King and our Savior. And so let's take a moment now to read our text, the words of our text. You'll find them in Psalm 18. 
uh, and we're going to be considering uh, verses 28 through 50 of Psalm 18. Let's hear the word of our God as we find it in Psalm 18. For you will light my lamp. The Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and sets me on the high places. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You've also given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. You enlarged my path under me so my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and overtake them. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. I have wounded them so that they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet. For you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. You have also given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hated me. They cried out, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I beat them as fine as the dust before the wind. I cast them out like dirt in the streets. You have delivered me from the strivings of the people. You have made me the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. As soon as they hear of me, they obey me. The foreigners submit to me. The foreigners fade away and become frightened from their hideouts. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock, that the God of my salvation be exalted. It is God who avenges me and subdues the peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles, and sing praises to your name. Great deliverance he gives to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. A central doctrine in Scripture is the believer's union with Christ. We read of that in, in our text in our New Testament text from, from Romans six, where Paul very clearly dis- describes that we are united with Christ. When Christ died on the cross, we also died in a certain sense. Our old man died on that cross. And when Christ rose again from the dead, we also rose again in, in newness of life. For those who believe in Jesus, they are united to him. Scripture also says Christ is the vine and we are the branches. He is the shepherd and we are the sheep. The Bible often describes our our union and relationship with Christ uh, like a marriage. Christ is the groom and the church is the bride. And this makes a lot of sense for us, especially those of us who are married Husband and wife are are so united in their covenantal relationship with each other that when a husband has has a great success, that's also the success of of his wife. His wife shares in in the joy 
of her husband. And, and maybe when a, a wife is, is sorrowful, going through a difficult time, the husband shares in that sorrow as well. But as we read of Christ's victory here in, in Psalm 18, we are reading also of our own victory because we are indeed united to Christ. And so this passage is immensely relevant for us. This isn't just the, the, the writings of, of some king and the victories of some king millennia ago that, well, why are we reading this in a church in the 21st century? What, what relevance does this have for us? No, this is immensely relevant for our Christian lives. This passage speaks of our Savior King and thus also of our very own victory as those who have faith in God. The message of, of Psalm 18 is needful for us to hear. We live in an age of a defeated Christianity. The news we regularly read of, of churches acquiescing to liberal agendas and ideologies. Rather than the church changing the surrounding culture, culture all too often pushes on the church and, and causes the church to, to conform to it. That's a sign of a defeated Christianity. Sin appears to be more powerful than the gospel. This might even be uh, your thought as you come to church this morning. After all, how many times have you given into temptation because you thought, I can't possibly have, have victory over this sin. So why even try to fight it? That's a sign of a defeated idea of the power of Christ. That is a defeated Christianity. It denies the transformative power of Christ. We survive as a church, but... We seem to make very little advance in the kingdom of God. Rather than doing the work of, of missions with boldness, all too often we see churches apologizing that in years past they have gone and, and gone to these various tribes in Africa or, or South America or, or Asia and brought the gospel to them. They say, well, we shouldn't have done that in, in times past. That was wrong of us to go and do that. We live in an age of a defeated Christianity. We lack confidence in the might and victory of God, and so we think the best way to live in this world as believers is, is simply to survive. No real advance, just maintain the status quo. Yet Psalm 18 comes to us, this morning, it comes to you this morning, encouraging you to have a victorious Christianity. It encourages you to live life victoriously. And such a victorious life begins by following the path of the Lord. Now, the path of, of, of God in the Old Testament is often synonymous for the life of faith. This is what David emphasizes in our text. Notice in verse 28, David says, For you will light my lamp. The Lord my God will enlighten my darkness. David pictures himself on a path. And all around him is, is darkness. And God comes and, and grants him light. He, he lights his lamp. 
what a description of all those who are walking apart from faith in God. They are walking in darkness. You are walking in darkness if you are walking apart from, apart from faith in God. You're seeing the world like a blind man. You might be able to feel all sorts of, of different things. You might be able to get around. But you're not seeing the, the beauty and, and the, the glory of, of the world. You're not seeing what the purpose of your life is. You stumble around wondering, what? Why am I here? What is the purpose of life? You find yourself caught up in life-destroying actions and, and thoughts. You find yourself depressed because you are lonely and cannot find anything to fix that. You find yourself anxious as you seek to provide for yourself in a world that seems chaotic, where nothing seems to make sense. Nothing deals truly with your anxiety. That's what it is to walk apart from the light of God's word, the light of faith. You need the Lord to grant you the eyes to see what this world is all about. You need God to show you how to live in this world that, so that you can understand what your purpose on this earth is. The way God has illumined this world is through the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. When you follow the, the Bible, God opens your eyes to understand the world in, in a whole different way from what your natural man was used to uh, seeing. God grants you sight amid a people who are walking blindly. He lights your lamp. And in response to that, you might ask, well, there, there's many different religious texts out there. There, there's every, everyone almost seems to have, have, well, this is the philosophy of life. This is, this is the way you can understand this world. Why should I understand the Scriptures? Why should I, I follow the Scriptures? How do I know that this is indeed the way above all other ways? How do I know Jesus is right when he says in John 14, verse 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life? Well, if we're looking specifically at Psalm 18 and what David says here, the answer David gives is found for us in verse 30. The response to that, that, that question by saying, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. What's David saying there? David is saying, God's word is proven. God himself is a proven God. And we can understand this. We're, we're sympathetic to this argument. We live in a world that makes much of the experience of others. Now, when we're looking for a restaurant to go to that we've never been to before, we don't just, well, some, of, some brave people might go to that restaurant, but we often go on, on Google Maps and, and check out what the reviews are for it. If we go to a dentist or a doctor's office, uh, and it's a new doctor for us, we will go and check out the reviews. We, we want to hear of the experience of others. We want to see if this is a proven place. We look for their testimonies. Now, we, we don't base our faith solely on the experience of others. It is indeed, it still indeed is an important aspect of our faith. It's encouraging for us. This is what David is getting at in verse 30. He's saying, trust in God. 
Trust in, in this God because he is indeed a proven God. I can testify to his character. You need to remember that uh, Psalm 18 is likely written near the end of David's life. David has had significant time to test and try God's word. From being that shepherd boy taking care of his father Jesse's sheep to uh, being a captain and, and fighting under Saul to, to being a king in Hebron first for, for seven years and then going on to being a uh, king over all of Israel for a period of time. David has experienced much. He's known the sorrows of life. He's known the difficulties of life. He's known peace and joy. He's known trials and afflictions. But after all he has experienced in his life, he has concluded this is the way to live your life. God is a perfect God. You can trust him. He will not fail you. He is a rock. He is a refuge for those who have put their faith in him. He will protect you and be a shield to you if you trust in him. David says, as for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. He is a shield to all who trust in him. We live in a world where many people are trying to find, they're, they're, they're trying to find meaning to this life. And they often do that by trying to pave a new road, a new path. This is often the independent road of self. It is a road of the individual. This is what postmodernism has taught. It's taught that, well, uh, there's no one truth. Instead, uh, your truth is, is your truth. Uh, it's all subjective. It doesn't matter what that one truth is. You know, you just follow where your heart desires. Go where you want to go. Pave a new path and, and everything will be all right. This is the way to live life. And we're now reaping the horrible consequences of, of such a worldview and philosophy of self. People blindly going down paths of, of self-destruction, not basing themselves upon the truth of God's word, but basing them, their, their, their life and philosophies upon their sinful selves. People blindly going down paths of self-destruction and, and the destruction of, and we see the destruction of, of civilization through depravity, decadence, and, and debauchery. This is not a proven road. And all that road is currently proving is how debased human nature is. All it is proving is how blind we really are. I'll just give a small example. We see society often cry out against the, the and rightfully so, crying out against all the crimes against women, the sexual crimes against women. And yet at the same time that this culture is crying out against those things, they, on the other hand, have entertainment that's full of the objectification of women. They're, they're blind to, to what their actions are doing. It doesn't it, it, it make sense to us, well, that you're, you're reaping what you're sowing. 
They're blind to it. The unbelieving world is blindly pursuing a road that leads to destruction. But the word of God is a proven road. It leads to life in abundance. It leads to victorious life. This is the path of God. You can be certain of victory in following the path of God because it is a stable road and because God cares for and protects his people. It says he has a shield to all who trust in him. Look down in verse 36. You enlarged my path under me so my feet did not slip. God, God protects his people upon this road. And notice what David says in, in verse 33 as well. He makes my feet like the feet of deer and set me on high places. One year I was backpacking in the Rocky Mountains in, in Banff, Alberta. And I was uh, uh, getting pretty close to the tree line and happened to, to look up at, at a sheer rock cliff uh, sort of right above me. And about 50 feet above me was this mountain goat on, on about uh, two to three inches of, of ledge and completely confident and, and stable upon, you know, just a very small sliver of rock. It wasn't afraid at all. It was, it was just resting there. And it had that confidence that, you know, it would jump off to the next little ledge. And that seems to be what David is describing here, following the path of God Following God's word leads to such security that even though all the circumstances around us might, might be extremely precarious, yet if we are relying upon God, we are as, as secure as, as, as a mountain goat uh, navigating a steep cliff. This is the protection that God affords his people. This is the confidence of a child of God. It's a confidence that no matter what I am going through, no matter where I am, God will protect me. I need not fear what will happen. Faith in God means that as we saw last week, the mount, even though the mountains are, are thrown into the midst of the sea and the oceans roar, we are confident of the protection and safety of our God because we are on this firm foundation of God's word and God is leading and guiding us through that path of life. So, live victoriously by following the path of God. But also, we can live victoriously because our salvation is a mighty salvation. Notice what David says in verse 29 of our text. For by you I can run against a troop. By my God I can leap over a wall. During David's life, during his time in the history of redemption, spiritual warfare often took on a very physical aspect. As the nations around Israel sought to lead her into sin through physical idols or, or try to conquer portions of the land of Israel to subjugate the Israelites or to lead them away into captivity, Israel often had to resort to physical warfare, to warfare with, with physical swords and shields and, and spears. She had to go on the offensive at times. She had to go on the defensive at times. 
This is what David describes when he says that because of God, he can run against a group of soldiers, confident that he will be able to defeat them. I find it striking that Psalm 18 is, it appears almost verbatim for us in another place in Scripture. It appears for us very near the end of, of David's life in, Psalm, in 2 Samuel 22. We have Psalm 18 given for us almost verbatim in 2 Samuel 22. But what follows in 2 Samuel 23? It's, it's maybe some of the, uh, uh, one of the favorite Bible passages of a lot of, of young boys because it talks about David's mighty men and all their, all their valiant uh, victories over, over their enemies. This is intentional placement. Here in, 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 in Psalm 18, we have the victory that God gives to his people. Their, their mighty salvation. And then we have the exploits of, of, of God's people who are trusting in him. And I'll just uh, give you the account of, of several of David's mighty men and on what they did as they trusted in God their rock. David's mighty men were, were some of the most courageous men of that time. We read of Adino, the Esnite, who killed 800 men at one time. There was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, who, who fought for such a long time that, that he had muscle spasms in his hand that caused the, the sword to, to be stuck to his hand. Read of uh, David's three, three of David's mighty men who, who went and got David a cup of cool water from the well of Bethlehem. The well of Bethlehem was surrounded by an entire garrison of, of Philistine soldiers. And so these three mighty men had, had to go and, and through this entire garrison to get David a simple cup of cold water. These were brave men. They were, they were competent men. And yet, Scripture tells us here in Psalm 18 that they did what they did, not because of some Spartan idea of, of uh, valor, not because of some worldly idea of courage. They did such exploits because their trust was in God, because they knew that God was mighty and powerful. And God was with them, fighting the battle for them. Now, our warfare in the New Testament, in this period, this current period of redemptive history, is not the physical warfare that existed in the Old Testament. It's that our, our warfare is that spiritual warfare that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 6, that warfare that is not of flesh and blood, but it is that warfare that is against spiritual hosts of wickedness, spiritual armies of wickedness. And while it might be that our warfare looks very different, we're not holding spears and swords or, or AK-47s or AR-15s. Our warfare is spiritual, and yet the victories God promises us are the same victories he promised his people in the Old Testament. David, he ran, he was able to run against a physical troop of Philistines. 
God's word promises us that we too, relying upon the grace of God, can run against our spiritual enemies when we have that whole armor of God. I've always appreciated how the scripture speaks in military terms of our sanctification. We are called to fight that fight of faith, to combat the spiritual foes of darkness, to wage war against our sin. We are to engage in heated, pugilistic battle against wickedness. Yet if you've ever um, practice any form of hand-to-hand combat or, or martial arts, you know it, it's, it's very exhausting work. You know, jiu-jitsu rounds typically last three to five minutes, and after you've done one round of jiu-jitsu, you're, you're, or at least I am, pretty much wiped. Now, back when I was growing up, my brothers and I would uh, practice uh, medieval uh, uh, um, uh, sword fighting, and in just a, a few minutes, we were, we'd be exhausted, barely able to, to lift our sword up. Physical combat is intense. It's uh, very hard to do. It's tiring. And our spiritual warfare can be like that as well. It's very easy for us to get discouraged in this life when we see the evil one waging war against the church. We can easily become weary seeing the love of sin in, in the world around us and even in our own hearts. And this can cause a, a defeated Christianity. But David's military exploits in our text get our eyes focused once again. They describe the victory that there is for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are indeed able say no to sin and yes to righteousness. That we are no longer slaves of sin, doing sin's bidding. But we are now able, by the grace of God and the Holy Spirit, working in our hearts, able to be slaves of righteousness, obedient to God. David's military exploits were uh, what was prophesied of in Deuteronomy 32, verse 30. Deuteronomy 32, verse 30, the question is asked, how could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight? The question is, how could this be? How, how can it possibly be? It seems humanly impossible, but the answer is given, unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them. Such victory is possible. Because of the might and power of God. Because we indeed have a mighty salvation. David says here, in verse 34, He teaches my hands to make war, so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. This is of the Lord. This victory is of God. Friends, this means that you can indeed experience victory over your besetting sins. Philistines were a continual threat to Israel's, but those who trusted in the Lord were able to run against a troop. Though you might have continual threats against your soul in Christ, you can have the victory, for his right hand will hold you up. You can be confident of this victory. 
because of the victory that Christ has gained over the grave and sin. As we saw last month, Christ was innocent. He lived the perfect life. And yet he died the death of sinners. And yet he experienced the, the resurrection of the righteous. And we who are united in him died when Christ died and rose again when Christ rose again. We read Romans 6, 5 through 7 earlier, but I'll read it again here. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Through Christ you have been freed from the power of sin, just like Israel uh, was no longer slaves in Egypt. So you are no longer slaves in sin if you are in Christ Jesus. Just as Israel was now warriors who could run against a troop, against an army of the Philistines, so now by God's grace you are warriors able to run against the armies of sin. This is because God's salvation is a mighty salvation. Notice what David says in verse 35. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. That's a very interesting way for for David to put this. Your gentleness has made me great. Here, here David is describing warfare. He's describing uh, uh, feats of strength and might and power. And yet, there's something different here. Your your gentleness has made me great. That that doesn't seem to make sense. Yet it is indeed God's gentleness that makes his people great. It's not your own might or courage that will make you great. It's not your pride or wisdom that will make you great. Rather, it is his gentleness, his grace towards you that will make you victorious. God has indeed been gentle towards you were a rebel against him. You were actively engaged in warfare against the God who created you, and he could have snuffed you out just like that. He called you. He, he redeemed you. He brought you back. This is the grace of God towards sinners. And here, my dear, we go deeper and see Christ more distinctly. The word gentleness here in our text has the idea of humiliation can be translated as humiliation. It has the idea of emaciation. It describes wretchedness and intense groanings and sufferings. It was the sufferings of God for you that made you great, that made you the redeemed people of God. It was the sufferings of Christ that brought you into relationship with the living God so that you could be counted as sons and daughters of Heavenly Father. The might of your salvation is described in verses 39 through 40. For you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. You have also given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroy those who hate me. You can live victoriously because 
of the might of your salvation. But also, live victoriously knowing the triumph of your Savior. We can live as the people of God on this earth knowing that Christ, through Christ, we shall do valiantly. That's what we're saying in, in Psalm 60. We can say that. We can, we can know that. But ultimately, we see around us a fallen world. We see that we are still have that old man that, that clings to us. We may even still cry out with Paul. In Romans 7, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And sometimes all these statements of, of the victory we have in Christ can sound incredibly hollow. Because while the war, you might believe the war has been won, the battles can still be lost. And this can be a great discouragement for us in, in our lives. Sometimes we can get so lost in sorrow over sin that we lose sight of the redemption of God. Sometimes you can get so lost in the different circumstances that you don't even have the eyes of faith to see the triumph of Christ. Well, that's not really relevant for me where I am at. You even wonder how it is possible for God even to, to save you. But you, in, in doing that, are losing sight of the triumph of Jesus Christ. Psalm 18 ends with that triumph of Christ over all his enemies and the king over all the nations of the earth. This is the vision we need to keep in our minds as we walk on this earth. It is a vision of Christ being victorious over all. We read in verse 43, You have delivered me from the strivings of the people. You have made me the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. As soon as they hear of me, they obey me. The foreigners submit to me. This is indeed the triumph of Jesus Christ. This is the war won. This is Christ receiving the praise that he alone is worthy of. Nations coming and bowing down before him in reverence and worship. This is the victory of our Savior. And we have that great promise that we will be among that crowd. Notice what verse 49 says. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles. As all the others are, are coming in and, and worshiping Christ, David says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles. I will, I will join with these Gentiles, praising and glorifying your name. And this is indeed the end goal of the Christian church. The end goal of the Christian church is not health, it's not wealth, it's, it's not prosperity, it's not having huge numbers, it's not the American dream, it's not having a nice, happy family, it's not a secure retirement. It is this vision we, we see here of God receiving the praise of we standing among the Gentiles, praising the Lord for his great work of salvation. This is the great goal of the Christian church. You know it all from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. No matter what the world might promise us, this is our great hope as the people of God, that one day 
would be able to glorify God forever in eternity. Perhaps you need a sense that this is truly a goal worth fighting for. Going through all the miseries of, of this life, all the afflictions of the people of God, and at the end of, of my days, praise God. But this truly is an incredible goal for us to be fighting for. Consider, we need to consider this whole psalm here. Consider the character of God that David describes here. It says in verse 46, The Lord lives, blessed be my rock. Let the God of my salvation be exalted. What prompted David after his whole life to say, This is it. This is the, the amazing thing I get to do. Is, is praise and glorify God. David could say, say that and, and yearn and desire to say that because of what David said earlier in, in the beginning part of Psalm 18. Beginning part of, of Psalm 18, you'll remember David speaks of the sorrows of the grave. He speaks of the pains of death. He speaks of the snare of death. He says, The pines of death surrounded me, and the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. That was where David was headed. He was headed to death and destruction. Yet God, in his gentleness, saved David. And all David wants to do is, is praise and exalt the Lord who lives, the rock who lives. This is what God has done for those of you who believe on His name. This is the God who offers to you salvation today. Great deliverance He gives to His King and shows mercy to His anointed God showed great mercy to Jesus Christ as King. He showed mercy to His anointed and raising Him again from the dead so that we might be able to stand and know salvation in God, that we might know the blessedness that our rock lives and might, at the end of our days, praise God and for all eternity declare the Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. There's none like this Lord. Deuteronomy 32 verse 31 says, says this, contrast in all the pagan gods of Canaan. The Lord is contrasted there with all these pagan gods. With these words, for their rock is not like our rock. All, all the pleasures of this world are not like our rock. Our rock alone satisfies. Our rock alone gives life. Our rock alone gives victory. There is no rock like our rock. He is a rock who lives. He is a rock who is blessed forever. And so, in conclusion, as we sing Psalm 18 this month, I encourage you Remember, each time you sing this psalm of the victory that you have in Christ Jesus, that you are indeed headed toward that parade of triumph when Christ returns, that there is an end to the war, 
And while the war has been won and battles still need to be fought, we have victory in Christ Jesus. For in Christ we shall do valiantly. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that, Lord, we have victory through Jesus Christ. That, Lord, you are a proven God. That you are a rock, a refuge. Lord, we pray that we would ever live victoriously, giving you praise, giving you glory. That, Lord, we would show forth the excellencies of your name, the excellencies of your gentleness to us. Lord, we pray that you would grant by your Spirit that we would walk in the path of God, that we would live victoriously only through the name of Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray.